If you will, actually open your Bible to Romans chapter 8. And um, if you've got a copy of the Confession, you can open it up. Hopefully everybody at least has a, one of these outlines that they can look at. I made this, I thought it might help a tad, uh, just sort of to sort of follow along where I'm going to be. A copy of the Confession and Romans chapter 8 is going to be the, the passage that I want to read and that we'll be looking at with our, the most attention. I do want to address an issue before we begin that's come to my attention. I think these things need to be dealt with publicly. That way everybody's clear on uh, the reality and, uh, and we can just move forward. Um, you'll notice under heading 3, capital letter A, this distinction is not feely. It's supposed to be freely. That is what we call a typographical error. I take full responsibility for that. And I hope that having drawn your attention to that, we can move forward without any other incidents. <laughs> you print stuff out, you know, you're doing a good job. I got all these printed out, 15 of them. And then you look and you got an error. And so, I want to read... Romans chapter 8, two verses, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your Word as we've heard it already and as we continue to dig into it, Lord, I pray that you'd bless our time. I pray that you would teach us. As always, Lord, we ask that you'd stir our hearts and our affections as we consider this great salvation, your goodness toward us. Lord, a, a purely one-sided goodness from heaven to sinners. Uh, we can't comprehend. We can't understand as we all We wish we could. But I pray that you'd teach us even more of what you've done for us and that we would worship even more having understood just a, just a little bit of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to turn in your confession to the table of contents for just a second. The table of contents. Just to point out a couple things and... One of the reasons that I encourage everybody to have their own copy and one that they can write in and mark in is, is for this very reason. We've, we're taking the outline from James Renahan that considers chapters 7 through 20, the largest section of the confession, all under the heading of the covenant. 
all of it beginning with chapter 7 as the chapter on God's covenant and then everything flowing out of that is somehow connected to God's covenant, the, the covenant of grace. We've looked at chapters 7, 8, and 9. Chapters 10 to 20 cover what we might call covenant graces. Christ as mediator has by His blood sealed a new covenant and that covenant guarantees to us certain blessings. It secures them for His people. And some of these blessings are strictly, in every sense of the word, one-sided. For example, chapter 10, we're going to look at tonight, effectual calling. Chapter 11, justification. Chapter 12, adoption. Strictly one-sided graces. Others of them, we, when we open them up, we'll see that they, they could be viewed as synergistic, as man operating along with God. Beginning at chapter 13, sanctification, saving faith. Well, who has to have the faith? I have to have the faith, but God also grants the faith. Repentance, who has to repent? I have to repent, and God grants repentance. You see, it's, it's God and man working together, but all of this is still blessings secured for us and guaranteed for us in the new covenant, in Christ's blood. Now, notice in that section, there is no chapter on regeneration at all. Nothing. Now, I want you to think, why would our confession not have a chapter on regeneration? As, as important as that topic seems to be, as that subject or that doctrine seems to be, why is there not a chapter on regeneration? Now, with that question in your mind, I want to read some comments on Romans 8, 29, and 30, which we read. I quote, There are so many indications of order in this passage that we are compelled to regard the Apostle as enunciating the order, calling, justification, glorification, in verse 30, and also establishing calling as the act of grace directly joined to predestination as that which in the realm of application brings the latter, predestination, to expression. In other words, when we read Romans 8, 30 specifically, we could go back to 29, foreknowledge, predestination. Verse 30, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Paul is clearly describing an order of salvation. In, in theology, it would be called the ordo salutis. Here's the order. Here's how it works out. And Paul clearly places predestination and calling together. Predestination, God's work in eternity, and then calling right after that. No, nothing in between. In other words, Paul assumes that the call is what brings God's sovereign predestination into action in time. So effectual calling in Paul's language actually takes precedence over anything else, including regeneration in the discussion or of the order of salvation. And that quote I read from John Murray, he actually puts that forward. That effectual calling exegetically from the Scriptures in the, the, the number of its uses should take precedence over regeneration in our thinking of soteriology, the study of salvation. 
So the confession doesn't address regeneration as a separate topic because the, uh, the authors of our confession considered regeneration actually as a subcategory of effectual calling. It falls beneath it. Now that's startling because evangelicals, we've all experienced this probably, spend far more time talking about regeneration than they do effectual calling. And they don't spend near enough time talking about regeneration. Where's effectual calling? How many of us have ever heard the doctrine of effectual calling addressed? And yet our confession, the confession of our Baptist forefathers, has a whole chapter on effectual calling. Hopefully you can, the point I'm trying to make is this is an important doctrine and yet it's, it's almost never considered. If we don't understand this, there's going to be a lot of passages in the scriptures that don't make any sense. So then let's look at, you can turn now to chapter 10 on effectual calling. The first thing that this first paragraph gives us is what I've called a surface level definition. And if you're looking at the main headings in my outline, I should have just said superficial. I didn't think of that until this afternoon when I was going over my notes. So it's called a surface level definition. We're just going to skim the surface very quickly. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit. The first thing that we meet with is the called. If we're going to understand a, a, a surface level definition of effectual calling, understand first, who are those who are called? Who receives this call? Well, the confession says, those whom God hath predestined. That's who gets this call. Now that takes us back to language that's already been used. In chapter 3, paragraph 3, we read that some men and angels are predestined to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So there we have two categories, men and angels. We can limit it down in the next paragraph. These men, thus predestinated, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. That is, those who receive this effectual calling are those who are predestinated unto life, and that's a fixed number. It never gets higher, it never gets lower. It's a fixed, definite number of people. The fifth paragraph of chapter 3, those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel of His good pleasure and His will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory. You following that? Predestination to the end of glory. All the predestined will be glorified. That fixed and definite number. Paragraph 6 of chapter 3, God hath... As God hath, God hath appointed the elect unto glory, he, so He hath by the eternal and most free purpose of His will ordained all the means thereunto. You've got a people predestined. They will eventually get to glory. That's the end. And God hath also ordained all of the means to get them to that end. We saw in chapter 8 that God the Father did from all eternity give a people to be Christ's seed. And to be by Him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. Same people. People predestined, given to the Son. 
Paragraph 8 of chapter 8. To all those for whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. Those who are predestined, given to the Son, all of the means have already been ordained to get them to glory. Christ has redeemed them, accomplished the work, and He will effectually apply all of that work. That's a part of the means to get them to glory. So when we ask the question, who are those who receive the effectual call? It is a particular number of people predestined in eternity, given to the Son by the Father, who will certainly be brought to glory... Because Christ has already obtained their eternal redemption and will certainly and effectually apply it to them. That's who gets it, who receives this call. Romans 8.30, the beginning of the verse, said, And those whom He predestined, He also called. Not which, not that which. God predestines whom's, not witches. Those whom He predestined, people, whom's. And those whom he predestined, he also called. The word kaleo means an authoritative summons. It's not like I called my mom, but she was busy, so I left a voicemail. It's an authoritative summons. You hear. Now, a call. And that call is given to those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, as you could, you could look up there in verse 29. That being the case... This call has to be distinguished from a general or external call which could go out to all sorts of people. If you're preaching the gospel in a church service, in the open air, the call is going to go out to countless people. You you don't know. It's just going out. That's the call from the mouth of the preacher. That call is not effectual because the preacher is not God. We'll, We'll see more of that in a minute. This is not the general or external call of the gospel. Notice Romans 8:30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, are all or will all be glorified? No. Everybody's not going to be glorified. Some people are going to spend eternity in hell apart from the presence of God. Everybody's not going to be glorified. Therefore, everybody is not going to be justified. Because everybody that's justified is glorified. Not all are glorified. Therefore, not all are justified. And if not all are justified, then not all are called. Everybody doesn't get this call. This is a specific call. Not everyone is a recipient of this call. There is... In Scripture, we have to differentiate between these various calls. For example, Revelation 17:14 represents or refers to the called and calls them chosen and faithful. That can't be said about everybody. 1 Corinthians 1:2, those called are referred to as the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's not everybody. This call is not the preacher gives out the call and a bunch of people hear it. That group, the called, is synonymous with the elect of God, those predestined. Contrast that with Christ's words in Matthew 22:14. Many are called, but few are chosen. You go right back to the parable just before that, and it's talking about the external general call. Invite as many as you can find. 
Many are called, but not everybody's chosen. Not everybody gets to stay. The general call is what we do. As preachers, as evangelists, as parents with our children, in whatever situation, you share the gospel and you call somebody to believe, repent and believe the gospel. That's what we do. That's not effectual. The effectual call is something God does. Which leads to the second matter in this definition, the caller. Who are the called? There are those who are predestined before the foundation of the world. The caller is God. The confession says, those whom God hath predestined unto life, He is pleased and is appointed in an accepted time effectually to call. Who calls? God calls. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God predestines according to His purpose. God works all things according to His counsel, including the effectual call. That's a part of it. It's God. It's a work that God does. Now remember, God is eternal. God is immutable. God is independent. God is omnipotent. God's purpose shall stand. His counsel cannot be thwarted. His call is an omnipotent call. It is an immutable call. It is an independent call. It does not depend on the response. Because it comes from God. God's omnipotent power. God's absolute power. It's a work of God. The works of God are omnipotent. You can't thwart God's works. He does them. So the caller is God, but even more specifically, it's God the Father. Romans 8.30, we've seen. He predestined, He called. Go back up to verse 29. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Go back up to verse, um, what we can say in verse 29. He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Well, who's the His? It's the Father. The Father's the one calling. 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's the caller? God in particular, the Father. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son... To me, who called? The Father called. In there, in contrast with the Son, Ephesians 1, 17 and eighteen. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Who's the He? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the caller? God. In particular, God the Father. So the effectual call is given by God. It's not the general call that goes out by the preacher, and it is the call given specifically by God the Father. Now let's look specifically at the call itself. Who are the called? Those predestined in eternity. Who does the calling? God. God the Father. What is this call? Notice first, it is an end-time call. 
Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time. Now, if it's appointed and accepted by God, it is a part of His eternal decree, His eternal purpose. But remember that time is a creature. Time is not eternal. God is not bound by time. And so when we read His appointed and accepted time, we're talking about something that God determined to do inside of time. It happens at a moment in time. The call of God. It's an in time call. It's also, and here's where we get the, the title of this chapter, it is an effectual call. He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call. If something is effectual, it is successful in producing the desired end. It does accomplish its end, its goal. A man, we can call with no response. We don't have that power. We are not effectual in ourselves. We're not effectual beings. God's call always produces the very response that it calls. Because it comes from God. It's, it's an act of God. God does something in His omnipotent power. An act of God upon the creature which produces what it summons. The, the, the great picture is Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus come forth. Lazarus didn't come forth and say, no thank you, because he's already forth by that point. The call made him come to life. It was effectual. It is an effectual call. It accomplishes the very thing that it calls. Notice the means. He is pleased and is appointed an accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit. So we have two things working together to make this call what it is. First, His Word. Now, I'll be honest, it's at this point that we're going we're gonna to really dig down into some details. So, you're going to have to focus. His Word. That is God's Word, specifically in scripturated revelation, and even more specifically and primarily the preached Word. How are they to hear without someone preaching, Paul asks. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, or the folly of preaching, or the thing preached. Primarily, it is the Word of God preached. The written word expounded and proclaimed from one rational being to other rational beings. The veracity or the truthfulness and validity of God's word is brought to bear on the conscious faculties of the hearer. You use your God-given brains to receive the communication coming out of my mind that I've I'm, I'm twirling in my brain and it comes out of my mouth and goes into your ears and your brains receive it and you know the language that I'm speaking and you're, you're hearing all these words and you're cycling them through all of the things that you've learned throughout your whole life and you're making sense of communicated thoughts from God's Word. I take God's Word, I run it through the filter of Paul Ness and it comes out of my mouth as I try to explain it. You receive it and do something with it in your mind. That's what happens in preaching. I, I, if I spoke Chinese, it would not work. I speak the way you understand and you hear what I'm saying. 
God's messenger uses God's words, God's word as a means of moral suasion. I'm trying to I'm playing I'm playing funny with words here. Through my suasion, I'm trying to persuade you. The definition of persuade is through suasion. So the word comes out, and my goal is to to get your brain to comprehend what's being said with my mouth. That's that's what happens every Sunday. This is what we're doing. You didn't know that. That's what's happening. Here's the problem with just that by itself. It's a powerless man talking to other powerless men. So I can't make it work. All I can do is get communication from one man's brain to another man's brain. We have to remember the natural state of man is hostile to God, unwilling to hear, unable to hear, incapable of understanding any spiritual uh, reality from the Word of God. I can break it down as clear and as simple as anybody has ever heard it. But if it's in Chinese, you're not going to understand it. And if the Spirit of God doesn't make it effectual, it doesn't matter what language it's in. We see that in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't matter what language it's in if God makes it effectual. So you have the Word. It has to come. But there's also the Word in His Spirit. God's Word, or God's Spirit rather, comes in and makes... The effectual call, effectual. This is where effectual call makes its connection with regeneration. God, as He pleases, by His Spirit, takes advantage of the opportunity of the preached Word to act upon your rational faculties, or I should say both of our rational faculties, but yours, the hearers primarily, from both ends. The Spirit uses the preacher and the Word preached from the outside Takes that opportunity. He's coming into your ears and your mind to bring the word to you. But he also comes from inside the hearer, almost like a from the from the inside, and actualizes the response in the hearer using your natural components, your brain, your ears, your affections, your will. The spirit does that. Comes with the word this way and comes from inside of you this way and makes it effectual. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you have a Bible. I think it's up here, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. So God has chosen these people from Thessalonica to be saved by means of sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The Spirit sets them apart and they believed and they are saved. To this, he continues... He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus or of our Lord Jesus Christ. To this, this salvation, He, God, called you. Who called you? God called you. How did God call you? Through our gospel. As the preacher preached the gospel, God gave the call of salvation by means of the preached Gospel. So there's our, our surface level definition of effectual calling. It is an in time act of God the Father 
by means of His Spirit's accompanying His Word, which actualizes the very summons that it gives. And that's why it's important when you're preaching to give the summons. Repent and believe. You're expected to respond. So there's our, our superficial or service-level service definition. Notice, secondly, the supernatural description of this call. We're going a little deeper now, so hang on. Here's the question. What does the Spirit effectually accomplish? I'm, I'm picturing this in my mind. The Word is going out, and the Holy Spirit is riding on that Word. And at the very same time that he's writing on that word, he's inside of the heart of the unregenerate person waiting to catch it and make it meet in the heart of a person. But remember, that heart is corrupt. It's dead in trespasses and sins. It's not going to work unless the spirit inside does something. Here's the question. What is he doing in there? As the spirit comes on the front end and on the tail end, what does he do? He's acting upon an unregenerate person. Confession tells us first that there is a change of nature. God calls by His Word and Spirit, giving the divine summons out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to a grace of salvation or to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. The Spirit... And the Word, working, God calling, out of the state of sin and death. Remember chapter 6. The unregenerate person is dead in sin, wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. What are some of those faculties? The heart, the will, the mind, it's all corrupt. Mangled, defiled. He calls out of that to a state of grace and salvation. The condition where... Grace reigns in the soul, and it's an, it's an effectual call. So when he calls out of this state into that state, that person comes out of that state into that state. That's the general movement of the call. We're called out of darkness into light. We saw this morning, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of one thing into another. Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ or literally into the grace of Christ. He called you into that and because it was an effectual call of God, it made you come from that state to that state. Now let's go a little deeper and see what it looks like for the Spirit to effectually transition somebody from the state of sin to the state of grace using the means of the preached Word. And notice the verbs in our confession and how these things fall under the category. And this is why I gave you the outline so you could kind of see how these things happen. We're called by His Word and Spirit out of a state of sin and death by which we are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Notice these verbs. Enlightening, taking away, renewing, effectually drawing. These are the things the Spirit is doing. First, there's a change of mind. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. This is what the Spirit does. The mind which was once clouded in darkness is by the Spirit given the ability to understand the message. 
of the preached word in a way that moves beyond the simple acknowledging of the facts to a spiritual and salvific comprehension of the word. The word becomes effectual in the heart. It enlightens the mind. This is what the Spirit does. He gives understanding. We read in Acts 26 verse 18, God sent Paul to the Gentiles in order that he might open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice what happened. God opened, He wants to open their eyes so that they may turn. Who's turning? They are. Well, how's that happening? God's opening their eyes. He gives them understanding and they turn. God does not turn for them. They turn by an act of God. We saw a couple weeks ago Lydia from Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God did a work allowing her to focus her heart and her mind on Paul's message. Without that work, you can't focus on it. He gave that ability. He enlightens the mind. And by this act, the mind which was once alienated from the message and unable to understand it spiritually is given the ability to understand it. The Holy Spirit uses the conscious intellectual capabilities of a rational being to make sense of the message. Your brain understands through the Spirit's power. There's a change of mind. Then there's a change of heart. Taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. That's from Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The old heart which was hardened in its hostility to the message is replaced with a soft, living heart that is not hostile. It is receptive. What is a change of heart called? Regeneration. That's where it comes in. So you see how regeneration is a subset of the effectual call. Now, what's, what's beneath that? If the change, if the heart has been changed, then what's next? A change of the will. Renewing their wills and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good. Remember, the heart is the seat of all of the rational powers in a man. So once that is changed, all of those corrupt faculties, like we talked about several weeks ago, will, choice, those things, they are renewed. The will is the root of all of those. From the will comes choice, and from choice comes action. If the heart is renewed, then the or changed, the will is renewed. The heart is no longer opposed to God. Therefore, the will is no longer opposed to God. The will is also under the reign of God's grace. And so the will is given the freedom to do that which is well-pleasing to God. And thus, by God's own power, the individual's own personal ability to will is turned toward good. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Notice the language of regeneration. Circumcise your heart so that you will love. That's an act of the will. The heart being changed, the will is changed. 
Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All of that by His own mighty power. Change of mind, change of heart, producing a change of the will, which then produces a change of direction. The nature changed, the mind enlightened, the heart replaced, the will renewed. The Christ preached in the gospel is in that moment seen as the one great glorious desire of the heart. The heart and the will is no longer opposed. It sees Christ as the great desire. And notice the confession says, and effectually accomplishing, effectually drawing them to Christ, to Jesus Christ. Where they were once hostile, now they are attracted. Christ set forth in the gospel before the new mind, the new heart, the renewed will. All of these projects of, or products of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to exalt Christ. So as the Spirit does that and exalts Christ, we're drawn out of ourselves to Christ and the individual comes to Him. That's what happens. John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The next verse, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Heard and learned. That's effectual call. I heard and I was taught effectually from the Father and I come. So that's the supernatural description. The Spirit comes in. I'm going to try to paint this picture again. The Word goes out. The Spirit's writing the Word. He's using the opportunity, the occasion of the preached gospel. And He's coming with it this way. And it's coming in power. And on the, on the inside the believer, He's waiting to receive it. And while He's waiting, He's changing the nature, changing the mind, renewing the heart, renewing the will, giving direction. So when that Word comes, it is received and understood. And Christ is seen as all glorious. And the person comes. They come. That's what happens. Then notice thirdly and lastly a controversial distinction. Because when we, when we describe this stuff, the charge that's leveled against this doctrine is, well, your belief makes man a robot. Or, well, that just makes you a puppet. Robots and puppets, I was going to say rubbets, Robots and puppets do not have the ability to will or choose. Robots and puppets do not have rational faculties that are corrupt because of sin. Human beings, however, have been given the faculty of will. We saw that in the last chapter. We've been given that faculty. When God issues a summons by which the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind, replaces the heart, renews the will, that's not making man a robot. That's saving somebody. That is restoring man to what was lost in the fall. That's what salvation is. When men, following the effectual call and regeneration, trust savingly in Jesus Christ, they do so of their own will. I come to Christ. I choose Christ. I see Him as glorious and I come. Because God has done a work in me and given me the ability to come. 
The will in me has been changed, directed to Christ. And so I choose Christ and I come to Christ. All by God's power. Yet, so as they come most freely. Remember our definition of free. Without external restraint. That's what free means. Nothing outside of the individual constrains them contrary to their own desires. Nothing outside of a man restrains his ability in any way. He comes to Christ most freely. As a matter of fact, when a person sees Christ for the first time, after they're born again and they come, that's the most free thing he's ever done in his life. They come freely. And they come by effectual grace, or we might say irresistible grace, being made willing by His grace. God's grace. God's omnipotent, effectual grace where He works by His power, giving men what they cannot produce on their own. That's what God's grace is. Who comes willingly? Those who are called come willingly. God doesn't... God doesn't Come willingly for me. I come. We are the ones who come. And we have this ability because of God's grace working in us and renewing our wills. Psalm 110.3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Song of Solomon 1.4, the bride says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Just like that. Draw me. Draw me after you. Let us run. She's desiring and then boom, like that. She is in his chambers. He effectually brought her there. That's what happens in the effectual call. Nobody's a robot. Nobody's a puppet. And nobody believes in those accusations. We come freely and willingly because we've been renewed. Now let me, just in case all that was super confusing... Let me read some definitions from these other men. See if this makes sense to what our confession says. The reason I'm doing this, I've noticed that our confession is like a systematic theology concentrate. Like super distilled that has to be be cut like 1 to 20. Because I'm reading systematic theology books, big books. And everything that they say in 40 pages is said here in a paragraph, which makes an outline really difficult because you have to divide it up at like every two words. So listen to what this says. Calling is the efficacious summons on the part of God the Father in accordance with and in pursuance of His eternal purpose in Christ Jesus, addressed to sinners dead in trespasses and sins, A call that ushers them into fellowship with Christ and into the possession of the salvation of which He is the embodiment. A call immutable in its character by reason of the purpose from which it proceeds and the bond it effects. The the eternal purpose of God being that purpose and the Spirit being that bond. And then here's A.A. Hodge. It's an exercise of the divine power Upon the soul, immediate, spiritual, and supernatural, communicating a new spiritual life and thus making a new mode of spiritual activity possible. That would be repentance, faith, love toward God, etc. That's the new spiritual activity that's made possible by this act. Now I'll conclude with this. The effectual call comes specifically from God the Father. He chooses His elect. He predestines 
us unto salvation. In time, He initiates the application of redemption. The Father. We tend to think about God the Father as sort of the distant one who just conceded to save a people out of love for His Son. Because the Son was willing to be a substitute and now the Father feels obligated in some sense to show some love to us. But really, this is is sort of the Son and the Spirit kind of doing their thing. Kind of like grandparents who might feel obligated to show some compassion upon the child of an adulterous relationship carried on by their daughter-in-law. Well, he's not really ours, but since he's here, I guess we'll love him. That's not the case. John Murray says we neglect something precious when we forget that it is God the Father who initiates salvation in actual possession by the call of His sovereign grace. God the Father, just and gracious creator, sustainer, supreme potentate of all things, of all creation, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change, condescends to intervene and call every individual sinner by His power. He's not distant. He's not aloof from the work of salvation. To me, that is an amazing thought. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in in eternal Trinitarian oneness with every sinner, every individual whom, not witches, whom's, people, individuals, To think on that, let's pray.